Well, last time I wanted to briefly finish up. We had talked. We had talked about the liturgy of the Eucharist. We talked about the liturgy of the hours. Remember, those two really go together. Our basic liturgy, we said, is the the prayer of the church, is that combination of Eucharist and the daily offices. And we said, where does office come? A Latin word for duty. And what's that duty to pray without ceasing? So the church is. That's why we call it the, the offices. It comes officium in Latin is duty. It's our duty, as Paul said, pray without ceasing. The church is always at prayer. Okay, let's talk about the church calendar. We talked a little bit here, but I'm just going to take maybe 10, 15 minutes at most, and then we're going to go into confirmation and an absolution. The church calendar, the earliest church practice was there was no calendar because every Sunday was, a, was the festival of the death and resurrection of Jesus. By the way, in the church, you can never separate those. We can't understand Jesus' death without his resurrection. That tells us that it's not what it looked at like. I mean, anyone who is there at the cross, uh, you know, those uh, pagans who were there at the cross, or those people, Jewish enemies of Jesus at the cross, they would have thought, um, they would have had a very different impression of what took place. Maybe you thought it was brave or courageous like the Alamo. We don't really understand the cross until we have the resurrection. We don't understand the resurrection until we know the cross, the, the, the victory. So the church said every Sunday, we celebrated that. So what started the calendar? Um, did I move here? Uh, okay. So, okay. Uh, subsequently, we developed a, a, a calendar, and we're going to basically have two pieces of the cal calendar. One of them we're going to find out has to do with the lunar calendar. That's why it changes every year. We call it the movable calendar. So we're going to find out why, because our first feast in the entire church will be based on the Jewish calendar. You know what happened as a spoiler? is think of this, if somebody sadly loses their faith, and that's a real tragedy, normally they keep celebrating Christmas. Even though they make it secular or something, but they say, I cannot do Christmas. Christmas is just something everybody does. You know, people are still going to put up the tree even if they sadly lose their faith. And so if you're Jewish, the idea of the Passover was such a big deal that people aren't going to abandon that. So if you become a Christian, you sort of attach a new meaning to it. Which is actually the meaning Paul says, because the scriptures tell us it is a type of what Christ did for us. So that's not artificial. But what actually brought that is a calendar. So what's going to happen is we're going to have a whole part of the Christian calendar is going to be based on Passover, which has nothing, which has to do with the lunar calendar. And you know, every basically 28 and a half days, you know, is a, is a lunar month. And those just keep going around. <laughs> and there's no connection between that and the, and the, uh, the annual of the solar calendar. And then we'll have other feasts will come based on the solar calendar. So what we have here is the movable calendar uh, is going to be based, the Jewish Passover is going to turn into Easter. So they're going to say, why do we have, even though we do it every Sunday, let's have a really special time that we, in a unique way, we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. So that's going to become Easter. And Easter was still going to be tied to the lunar calendar. And however, we, and then what's going to happen is we end up developing various feasts out of that. People start thinking, wait a second, at Easter, what do we do? We baptize people. Well, we have to get re people ready for baptism. And we want them, if they're fasting and praying, we want to be doing it with them as a church. And that's the origin of Lent. It was the 40 days of fasting and prayer. And you say, where do we get 40? Is you can never fast on a Sunday. That would dishonor Sunday. Fasting is, fasting is like dieting at a wedding. No matter what you're doing, you, you eat the wedding cake. You know, it might be a sliver, but you eat the way, it would be rude not to. And so we never fast on a Sunday. Sunday's always a feast. Every Sunday's a feast. And so they say, okay, that means a week has six days. Well, six weeks is six, that's 36 days, but we need 40 days of fasting, so we have to need four more days. So we plug them on the front end. Saturday, 
Friday, Thursday, Ash Wednesday. That's when we start Ash Wednesday is when we begin. That's when we get 40 days. We had that 40 days, we could actually fast. So that's where it came from. But once people started doing this, so this is preparation. And then we have Holy Week. Uh, you know what actually happened with Holy Week is that um, people began going, uh, saying, wouldn't it be great to do Easter right where everything happened? To actually go to the Holy Land for Easter. So people began doing pilgrimages there. But it became like tour groups. Now that I'm here, how do I see everything? And they began saying, well, why, we know that the, that the Palm Sunday occurred right on a Sunday, you know, before. Why don't, we, why don't we go the route of Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday? And they started redoing things. We know this, we know the Bethany anointing. You know, they'd be able to reconstruct. That's where Holy Week came from. It came from tour groups saying, okay, today is Tuesday. We're going to see. <laughs> so they tried to reenact by going to the various sites. And people so loved spreading this out that when they went home back to their own countries, they said, let's do this at home. So that's where Holy Week came from, is we didn't just have uh, you know, Easter on, on that Sunday, that special Sunday, but we had a whole week where we thought of the different episodes that happened you know, in connection with our Lord's passion and death. Then once you start doing that, saying, wait a second, what happens now that we can count, now that we have like a beachhead, we can start counting and say, wait a second, doesn't it say our Lord was ascended into heaven on the 40th day? Duh, Ascension Thursday. So that's where we had to have the Ascension. And then we say, wait a second, the Holy Spirit came on the 50th, Pentecost, you know, the great feast of the Pentecost on the 50th day, so that we end up with Pentecost. And then we, we tagged down Trinity Sunday after, after that in the West. That's a Western thing. So, th so we've developed this calendar, and those are called movable, because every given year, if you said, hey, if I said, when's Christmas? You said, December 25th. So when's Easter? You have to look at a calendar. Or any of those, Steve, when is Pentecost? You know, when's Ash Wednesday? I would never know. I have to look. So we call, that's what we call the movable calendar. But something else happened. We also had a fixed calendar. If you were at church last Sunday, if, uh, when I talked about, you know, the epiphany, is it first start out with the baptism of Jesus, which was a big deal. And so the Eastern Church quickly has been solved because that's when Christ is declared to be the Christ, his anointing as the Christ, he begins his reign. That's a big deal. That's why the first gospel, the earliest gospel is Mark. He opens with the baptism of Jesus. That's why they say when we have to have a new apostle after Judas, here are the conditions. It has to be somebody who is with Jesus throughout the ministry from the baptism of John. You know, and you know, somebody who's seen the risen Jesus. Okay, so we start out with this. In the West, what we ended up doing is independently came up with Christmas. And we end up swapping the two, uh, not swapping in the sense of sharing them, is when we found out about Epiphany, we said, wow, we need to do this. And they saw Christmas, hey, good idea. So we ended up doing both. And that's where the 12 days of Christmas come from. The Epiphany is, uh, for various historical reasons, on January 6th. And Christmas is on December 25th. Oh, Bob, do you know why it's on December 25th? People used to say because there's a, there's a Roman festival called Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. You know why? Because think of it, the, it's saying it looks like the sun's going to lose the battle because the days are getting shorter and shorter. Well, when we have the, the winter, when we have the winter, um, uh, what do you call it? The solstice. Solstice, yeah. When we get the winter solstice, not equinox, which is the opposite. When we get the solstice, the shortest day of the year, from that day on, the sun begins winning, saying, you know. And so there's a feast in Rome called the Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. You know, basically celebrating the beginning of the, you know, of the, the new climatical uh, year. And what happened, though, was something else. People thought, well, it was nice to have the feast, but there's something else that Christians loved. In ancient, you know, folklore, that everyone thought is really great people, there's something about them. 
the, the folklore was that they were conceived on, you know, they were conceived on the uh, same day that they died. You know, people like Caesar and things. So the, the, the thing was they were actually conceived on the day that they died. Well, it was thought that Jesus died on March 25th. That was the common belief. March 25th is the day that Jesus died. Yeah, because that was basically with Passover. They thought the Passover probably at that time was, it was just a, a rough thing. Well, gee, if he died on March 25th, that means he would be conceived on March 25th. Well, nine months from March 25th is December 25th. That's probably the more realistic reason. Not that there's anything wrong with both, but that probably helped with that idea that people say, oh, duh, yeah, okay. Okay. And so we both keep each feast. So this is the beginning of the fixed calendar. And of course, once you have something there, things start building on like barnacles. People say, well, we get ready for Easter. Let's get ready for Christmas, right? This is a big deal. So you start having Advent, you know, getting ready for Christmas. You know, how should we celebrate this? And then we start doing the counting thing, saying, wait a second, doesn't it say in the scriptures that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day? I can count. That's where we get, you know, one week later is New Year's, which was the Feast of the Circumcision. Okay, the, and what's really important there, you say, why are we celebrating circumcision per se? The biggest thing is that's the day you name someone. They take their name officially, your name is uh, as of your circumcision. That's when it becomes, like in Christian world, your official name was at your baptism. That's the name. Because your baptismal name is, is when it becomes your name. You can't change your mind anymore. It's it. Okay, your parents could call you Baby X or what have you, or, or you know, saying, um, Theostratus or something is your name and saying, maybe I think I'd rather be Bill. Okay, Bill it is. <laughs> okay. And then the purification. Remember we say 40 days after, uh, Jesus was brought into the temple, right? His mother's purified on the 40th day, so that's February 2nd. And the Feast of the Annunciation, March. you get the, the drill. People could then build off of this, but it would be the same day every year. So we have two different calendars going, one that keeps moving. Every year we have to think where Easter is and everything based on where Easter is. It's like wherever the, it's like a train, wherever everything goes with it, moves around. But we have our fixed calendar, like anything related with Christmas is the same date every year. I can tell you exactly. Gee, when is you know the date? There's the date. Okay, because that's the solar calendar. So when does the church year begin? Well, we say, I think we have a more logical answer in the Western church. I don't mean as a critique, but really, we say, okay, the church has two pieces. First of all, we sort of relive the entire life of Christ, from waiting for his birth all the way to his ascension and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So what do we do with the rest of the year when we have to all start over again? We have a period where we basically, remember how the apostles didn't really get things during Jesus' life? It's only after the resurrection that suddenly it's like a murder mystery. They go, duh, it all fits now. Now I, now I get it. And so we sort of do that with the church, saying, hey, now that we've seen the whole story of Jesus, now we can look back at his teachings and things in a special way. And so what we do is we choose one of the Gospels that we study until the year begins again. So we say the beginning of the year is Advent, because that's when we start the whole cycle. That's where we begin saying, hey, let's go through Jesus' life again, from when we're first waiting to all the way to Pentecost. So we say the first Sunday of Advent is the beginning of the church year. In the Eastern Church, uh, as a CPA, I'm, I'm actually warm to this, the Roman tax year, was, a, it was, it was the day was called the Indictio, the indiction. Uh, and so they begin with tax year. Okay, so these are, it's, there's no spiritual significance. They just had to choose a day. That was the beginning of the Roman tax year. And they said, okay, we begin. So September 1st in the Eastern Church is the beginning with no spiritual meaning to it. It just that happened to be tax day. Okay, so we will stay with Advent. Okay. See one of our charts here? So we have the, the, the top, you see the Advent going to Christmas Epiphany, then uh, this time between uh, the Feast of the Baptism of our Lord until we start Lent. It's green. 
okay, then we go back to Lent, we have the Paschal uh, Easter feast, and then we have this, you know, this regular time. That's a Roman term called ordinary time. Uh, but it gives you, it's a nice visual. Okay, then we have the, uh, the saints. Another thing that happened was saints, and I think I told you a little bit about that last time, but if not, let's quickly review it. Is Romans had a custom, most people have a custom of remembering those who've died. Uh, for example, Jews have what's called the Yarzeit. If you know German, because you know Yiddish is a form of German. It's Jewish German. Yar, you know, year, Zeit, time. On the year anniversary, you do something, you light a candle if you're Jewish, you know, have special prayers, a Kiddush, every year uh, called the, at the Yarzeit. Well, the Romans did something very similar. Every, every one year from when somebody died, you went to the cemetery and had, had, had a picnic. Now, Roman cemeteries weren't funereal places. They're parks. I mean, you also had that kind of, but they were nice places, like in Europe until, uh, before the Second World War, it was that way too, is the actual, they were park-like. They, they weren't thought of being, you know, sort of scary places. They were the only green areas in some cities. <laughs> you know, so it, it didn't have that feel to it. And actually, it was like a family reunion. You go out to, in there and you would just, uh, you, you know, have a picnic at the site. So what happened when we had martyrs? You know, in the original church, if you listen to Word and Table and things we've been talking about, like for the, the early church, you know, the original persecutions tend to be sporadic, but you know, some, there's like a pogrom with Jews in Russia. People come through, a few people get killed for their faith. Well, we said, as a church, we go to visit them every year. We'd go on the year anniversary of their death and have a picnic there, except we had a Eucharist. We loved that because then they could really participate. You know, in the sense that we have Eucharist is participation across time and space. So we'd actually have dinner with them, so to speak. We'd have, you know, symbolically speaking, go to the cemetery. This is the origin of Saints' Days. Originally, they were all local. They were only for individual martyrs. And they were only for martyrs. People who had died there, people always remember them. Every, for long after, they'd go to the cemetery every year on the date that somebody had martyred. Their bishop had died. You know, their, you know they had died that day for the faith. They'd go there. And then what happens is it gets expanded to some people who are really, really important, but didn't actually weren't martyrs. And the first one uh, is Martin of Tours, who was extraordinarily important in Western Europe for you know, the spread of the faith there. And so when he died, he had done so much that people began going out anyway, even though he was a martyr and people kept doing this. And then what happens is normally it was just saints in your local locality. But suddenly people would go and say, I love this guy and the example and things. Why don't we do this back home? And people began sharing the days. Okay. Now, what day do you have? The ideal date is the day people die, because that's the day, it's called the Dies Natalis, which is Latin, simply means your birthday. It was your birthday into eternal life. For us, death is a birthday into eternal life. You celebrate, it's, it's basically our Christian birthday in the, in the deepest sense, when we're with the Lord, you know, forever, our Christian birthday. Now, what happens if you have competition? Okay. What if somebody's already on that date, you know? Uh, and so the other dates you could use instead. Or what happens if you don't know when they died? Like the apostles, people want to remember the apostles, but they're, except for Peter and Paul, we don't have any specific information about them, except we have stories that, hey, they died, they went off to Persia and were killed there, but we don't know what day it happened and things. We don't have like legal, we, we knew when people were killed. So if you don't know when exactly somebody was killed, what you could do is take the first time they dedicated a church in their name. You named a church after them. That's how we have all the apostles. The first day they dedicated a church to them and said, you know, let's call, let's remember Paul here. This is the Church of St. Paul. You know, that, well, that would be a feast day. Okay. Or if you already, you knew when somebody died, but somebody already had the date, what do you do? It's like trying to book a wedding. <laughs> and what you do is you say, well, sometimes what people would have is say, they, often people would move a body, uh, would rebury. And so if that happened, we'd choose the reburial date. The transfer date would be the date. Okay. Okay. 
Now, uh, All Saints Day is to cover everybody to get it on the calendar. We knew there were a lot of other people and things, so we celebrated uh, uh, celebrate that as well. Okay. Sundays versus feast days. Normally, Sunday, nothing can supersede, so to speak, the Lord Jesus. We're not going to have a saint, you know, normally on, on the Sunday, which is celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus. So normally, a saint gets, uh, simply just doesn't, isn't recognized that year. If, his saint, if the saint's day falls on Sunday, well, he just misses it that year or she misses it that year. However, there are certain saints days that are so, uh, certain days that are so important that even if they hit a Sunday, we're going to celebrate. Normally, they have to do with the Lord Jesus Himself, like His baptism, you know, His Epiphany, His the Holy Name. If they fall on a Sunday, well, it's all about Jesus, so we're still going to celebrate on a Sunday. So here's a list of those feasts where we think they're so important that even though they're on a Sunday, they beat the Sunday. You know, we actually celebrate them on Sunday, and we have one special thing. If we have a pastoral feast, if a lot of churches are named after people like Saint Barnabas or something. In that case, you could take the closest Sunday and choose it because that's your special day for your parish, and you can actually celebrate the saint's feast on a Sunday for your, if your church is named after the feast, saint, the saint. Now, what about the lectionary? The lectionary is how can you, three approaches, how do we read the scripture when we gather as church? One, the original way we did it was called Lexio Continua Latin, which simply means sequential reading. You know, we, we, we start off where we left off. Some of you have your kids reading a long book to them as they get older. It's like I did the, read the Chronicles of Narnia stuff. It's just saying wherever I left off is where we pick up tomorrow night. You know, it's bedtime now. Okay, we're here. We are next. Here's where we pick up tomorrow night. That's called, you know, Lexio Continua. I only use the Latin, uh, so you'll recognize when you read books later on, they'll often say that. They say, what is it? That's simply, in plain English, we say sequential reading, but it sounds so much more profound when you use Latin, doesn't it? Okay. Now, another thing we have, which is a very, a very um, evangelical approach sometimes, is you just say, oh, I'll read at a given Sunday, I'll read what I feel like, you know, how I feel inspired. And so they just sort of select the scriptures. Another one, there's no history of the church of doing that at all until the Reformation churches. I mean, because we'll find out that just never happened. People would do it Lexio Continua because that's what they did in the synagogue originally. Uh, and then what they had, when we started these feasts and saying, hey, if we're, if we're actually celebrating uh, Easter, shouldn't we be reading something to do with Easter? Instead of just where we happened to leave off last time? So the idea became on feast, shouldn't we read actual readings that tell us about the feast? And once we did that, so that's how the whole idea of the church here spreading and things is, why don't we just, you know, spread it out so it makes sense, you know, basically assign readings in a, in a logical way, in a systematic way. And that's the, that's the order of, of, of what we call today the lectionary, that there are certain uh, things that we'd read a systematic way of during the year, what are we going to read during the year when we gather for church? Now, what are the advantages of the lectionary? The first is a sacramental sign. Remember we say one of the biggest things we do as church is we hear God together, right? We, we don't read this. We read the scripture together. And so the very fact that the entire church is reading the same scriptures on a Sunday is a powerful visual sign of the fact that we read scripture together. So it's a powerful sacramental sign. You know, no matter where you are, you cross the guy. I just went to Pittsburgh, you know, to see my grandson. Uh, oh, I love that. Oh, gee. Uh, I had hardly met him. I've been like four times, you know, because they live in another state. But I stayed on for 10 days. That's why I missed two Sundays. You know, I just uh, really, really spent time with the kid, you know. And it was, but you get the idea. So, but I didn't have to wonder. I just knew exactly what the readings would be, et cetera, because the whole church reads those readings on Sundays. Everyone can read those readings on Sundays. Okay, comprehensiveness is one of the things that give us discipline. The trouble with uh, someone, I can tell you this, is anyone, any of us who preach, and actually I preach every Sunday, because you don't see it, I have a 5.30 service, so I, I preach the whole lectionary every year. 
And there are some really hard Sundays to preach. You say, wow, some are just easy and some are really, really tough. And that's really good because the real trouble if you come from the evangelical tradition, and I love that tradition, is very often you just have certain things you like to talk about. So it's getting the, you know, Paul says before he says goodbye to the elders of Ephesus, you know, I gave you the whole counsel guide. I told you the whole story, not just favorite pieces. You've got everything. I haven't held any, I, the full counsel of God. So this is a church discipline to make sure we hear the whole gospel, not just our favorite pieces. We don't just hear about Jesus forgiving sinners, which is critical. We also hear about we need to, to repent and change from our sins. You know, we have to hear money passages, hard passages, if you know, our money is, has a spiritual significance. <laughs> you know, say, don't meddle. You know, that kind of, you know, talk about spiritual stuff, don't meddle. Like, you know, gee, what do I do with my time or my money? But it forces us to face really hard passages and, you know, make sure we have a balanced reading. So we, it's comprehensiveness. It gets us, be, and I can tell you as a preacher, you'll learn because you have to get beyond your comfort zone. You know, God gave it to us. All of the word of God is valuable. The scripture tells us that. So, we're, so maybe sometimes there might, you know, sometimes the best stuff is, you know, you have to dig for diamonds. You know, <laughs> the best stuff you have to dig. And also context. This is what I like most of all when you preach every week off the lectionary to, to people, you know, is, is what happens here is very often when you read the Gospels and things, you can't really understand the meaning of the passage out of context. The same. You know what it's like? We probably all have a favorite movie. Have you ever had a scene in a favorite movie and you say, oh, I love this scene. You show it to a friend now, you can pull it up. And they like it, but they don't get it quite enough. Why, why not? Because when, even though the scene might make sense, when you know the characters, when you know exactly where this fits in, it means a whole lot more, doesn't it? And so one of the th big troubles I think we have with, with Bible is so often we just read scattered stories and we don't know how they fit in. Let me give you two classic examples that are critical. How do we understand the misnamed story of the prodigal son? Misnamed because he's an incidental character. The main character from start to finish is the older brother. So how do we know? Why can I say that so definitively? Well, if you actually read the Gospel of Luke, you find out he sets it up. What he does is he starts saying, and this is the whole context. It's a, it's a, uh, he starts how people came and say they're whining. Them. How come you hang out with these people? Sinners. Why do you hang out with sinners? And Jesus answers with three parables. And he works up to the height. The first one, he said, well, is there anybody here who, if they lost a sheep, if they had 100 sheep and lost one, wouldn't go after it. By the way, people misunderstand this parable. Sheep were very expensive in the ancient world. You couldn't, he's saying, no one's so rich they can just let a sheep go wandering off. He, because he doesn't, he doesn't say, isn't this neat that he goes after the sheep? No, he says the opposite. Is there anybody here who wouldn't look for it? Who could afford to just let a sheep go? So we have the wrong message. It wasn't, isn't that sweet? He goes after the lost sleep. No, it is, is we're valuable. We're worth going after. That's the whole value. And how can you look at the next parable, the woman with 10 coins? He, he says, okay, well, if we agree that sheep are valuable, then if sheep is too valuable, just let it go away. He says, well, what about a coin? What if a woman had 10 coins and she dropped one? What would you do? And she said, oh, I guess I just have nine. It's like, what, we can't find, we can't find, let's say, our, our um, refund check from the IRS. Are you going to say, oh, well, I guess I'll send another one next year? No. You'd say, move the, move the desk. We've got to go looking. We're not, we can't just walk away from money. So here's what Jesus now gets up to think. He said, okay, you feel everyone knows you don't walk away from a sheep, and everyone knows you don't walk away. What about a human being? He said, I tell you, and he uses the same language. I could do these things. So, so understand that this is all about, because the real problem we have is everybody, we don't have trouble with being forgiven. Our trouble is forgiving. And he says, this is the trouble of the prodigal son. 
One says, I don't get it. I've worked all these years. I've worked. I've been a good Christian. These people got away with murder. They got to do all the fun stuff and things. And you're telling me, no way, I'm not going in. That's where a lot of Christians are. Instead of celebrating sinners coming, they're resentful. All these years I've slaved away for you. You never did anything for me. <laughs> but again, we don't understand that. If we're reading, you can say, people, look, we're building up to this. We can even start from, we're building up to this. So now we'll understand what this, what this is about. Um, another classic case is one of the least popular par uh, stories in the Bible because people don't understand because they don't read it in context. Is in Mark's gospel is we have a story of Jesus who seems to need to have a second try. There's a blind guy who comes up to him and Jesus goes through a whole thing of putting, um, what he said, uh, uh, mud, he makes mud and things, uh, puts mud on his eyes and etc. And he says, well, can you see? And he said, well, I see people that are walking around like trees. So he does, tries again. Tries again, the son of God? No, obviously can't mean that. So what does it mean? And most people try to make excuses. They, they try to avoid it, hope people won't notice. Well, if you read the Gospel of Mark, it stands out and shouts at you because the very next thing in Mark's Gospel is the, is the whole pivotal point in the entire Gospel. It's the confession of faith with Peter. You see, the whole theory of the theme of the Gospel of Mark is you don't really get Jesus until you understand his victory is the cross. The cross is his victory. That's where he won the fight. That's the whole message of Mark's Gospel. I can tell you, the whole, it's all built on that. So Peter comes and says, you know, he says the famous, who do people say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. Okay. And that's where he said, you know, then we have that, you know, but, uh, and you know, I've got an, that first announcement of my death. I've got to die. Oh, God forbid. And here's the point. What is it telling us? He's saying, here, how do we understand Peter's confession? He's saying, here's what happens. Peter does understand. He does see in the sense it's true. Christ, he's the Christ, but he doesn't see clearly. Yeah, that's like the Jews. They knew there was a Messiah, but they couldn't see the real one they had. They saw, but they didn't see clearly. They knew there would be a Messiah to save them. That's true. But they didn't see that, that what the Messiah would look like. So they had only half the story. So he's saying, you don't get Jesus until you understand not only is he the Messiah, but his victory is not going to be killing a bunch of Romans. It's going to be on the cross and saving the world. But again, we only, my, my point wasn't to teach those little sermons, but to say that it changes everything when you know the thing is that we have to remember the point there is saying with that, that's a powerful gospel saying, remember, until we accept Jesus' cross, because he said, if anyone would be my disciple, he's got to take up his cross. A lot of us want to be admirers of Jesus and not follow him. You go, Jesus. I am so grateful. That's a good start. But he said, no, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to actually take, you have a cross too. You've got to follow the same path. Okay? Oh, no, more, whoa, whoa, let's turn the admiration thing. And so it's a very valuable lesson that all of us have a Peter in us. But again, but the point is, when you use a lectionary, you always can tell people, here's what's coming, here's what we built up to. We can make, and it can be a very powerful thing. So the three advantages are a sacramental sign that we all read the church together around the world. I always thought it was powerful when we go abroad and things. You'd be the church the next Sunday. And even though it's a language you might not understand, uh, you know, things you'd realize, but you'd hear them, recognize the names and things. Wow, everybody is reading this. You know, and saying the whole Bible. We're not just getting favorite passages because in evangelical churches sometimes pastors have the, the, their, their list of sermons they do and you just keep getting the same wonderful themes but we're missing another part of the gospel. Remember we said as Anglicans, we're big on the idea that a lot of being an Anglican is this dynamic tension. God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. God is three, but he's one. We have to do both and the tendency is for people to choose their favorite. Cosmic Christ or Jesus my buddy? You know, no, no. <laughs> We've got to, we, we can't choose our favorite. We have to have the, the full gospel. Okay. 
Historically, what happened is that the early church, we did exactly what they did in the synagogue. There was no fixed pattern. People just read until they ran out of time and then picked up again. But what happened, I said, with special feasts, we began to assign them. And the synagogue did the same thing. They began building around their feasts, having the days, and they began building. So you read the, read the Torah now every year. In, and you have, a, you have a feast at the very end. Simhat Torah is the feast where you complete the reading of the Torah. But it's interesting. I, this is a footnote, but you might like it. Is, you know what you do is you come to the last words of the Torah. You read the first line of Genesis. Because the Torah is eternal. It never ends. So you don't say, well, here's the end of the Torah. It's, and the very next thing is you read, in the beginning, God made the world so the Torah never ends. So if you ever go it's great on Simhat Torah, the, the, stuff, the celebration of the completion of the reading of the scrolls. Okay. And ultimately, all readings were signed. Now we have two different lectionaries. We have one lectionary we use for Holy Eucharist and another lectionary we use for the, the, the offices. Okay. And Holy, Holy Eucharist, we basically have, it's a Sunday festival lectionary. It's for Sundays and feast days. And the office also has one that's every day, including Sundays and feast days, because the idea would be you still have the office on Sundays and feasts. Now, the lectionary is a three-year cycle. Okay, it's a three-year cycle. Uh, cycle one, we use all Matthew. Cycle year B, we have Mark. Year C, we have Luke. And they say, what about John? John is so important that we read him every year. So, you know, he's the one who's sort of the commentary on the Gospels. So John, we, so you say, did he get left off? Quite the opposite. But it allows us to, to focus on one of those Gospels, especially during that period, one of those Gospels. Right now we're in Matthew. How can you tell where you are? It's really easy. What you do is look at the first Sunday of Advent, okay? Now, this is our first Sunday of Advent this year. Advent was in 2019. It was December 3rd, 2000, December 2nd, 2019. Add the digits, 2019. Plus one is three, plus nine is 12. Is 12 divisible by three? Yeah, it's year A. Anytime the digits are divisible by three, it's the start of year A. That means what's the next year going to be? This is a lucky hunch. B and C. And then what will happen? Then we'll have another year that's divisible. So you can always find out year A is, is divisible by three. That's what we just started for year A. Now, uh, okay. Pardon? Is it only working in 2000s? Once we get to the three No, it always work. Yeah. It will still work in the 2000s? Yeah, it's going to be every three, every, um, I think so. Because it worked in the 1900s, you know. Yeah. Keep going. But it does, because again, we do, we just we just crossed into 2000. We've been using this system uh, for at least for 70 years, and when it was 1900 and so 19 this and it works. But somehow the, it works out that way. Okay. The next thing. What's the framework for readings? Is we have here's something you need to know that's good. That's uh, that I'm amazed how many people professionals don't know this, and it really has a practical usage. The old, we have, we have, ideally we have three readings, ideally. We have the Old Testament reading, followed by a psalm, which isn't a reading, it's just our response. It's like singing a hymn. It's not, that's why we don't say the word of the Lord. You know, we, we're, we're all responding. We're not listening, we're responding. Oh, we have the New Testament reading, other than the gospel, and then we have the gospel. Here's the trick. The Old Testament reading is always chosen because it has some connection with the gospel. It could be one of two connections. It either could be something they mention in the gospel, like you know, the law and leprosy. So, oh, let's do this passage for Leviticus that tells us about that, to clarify. Or it can be a type of Christ. Remember, we say that certain things are foreshadowings. But it's always connected. 
So if you're a preacher, you can know that there's a connection between my Old Testament and Gospel, and I should look for it. And some people can help you if you can't find it immediately. Uh, one way to find it can be, again, look at your collect for the Sunday. It can be a real help. But the other thing I love is when people try to be inventive is there's no connection, except for feast days, there's no connection on a regular Sunday between the epistle, you know, the other new, and, and the gospel. We do those um, in, in sequentially. We just choose, hey, we're going to go through Romans. We're just reading Romans. And Romans. There doesn't mean, don't look for a connection. If you have one, it's, it's fortuitous. You know, if you have a, uh, a connection, but it's not there. So there is a connection. And by the way, the, the psalm is always chosen based on the Old Testament reading. So, so again, basically three of the things are connected. The gospel leads off. The gospel gives the theme of the Sunday. The Old Testament supports that theme, you know, with the, the psalm. And also we have just, we were reading the other New Testament books. Okay. Now, with the New Testament reading, we normally read Paul during the year. And during the Easter season, in years A and B, we normally choose either Acts of the Apostles or the non-Pauline epistles. And in year C, we choose Acts of the Apostles or the Book of Revelation. So that's basically how, if you're wondering how they organized the, the lectionary, that's how they did it. Now, you could go to two readings instead of three, but one of the readings always has to be the Gospel. And you can't eliminate the psalm. The psalm is just meant to be uh, uh, basically our response along, you know, this is the word Lord type of thing. So you can, like we do, we've gone, because of our length of time, we've gone down to two readings. It always has to be, that's not non-debatable. You can't have a universe without the gospel. Okay, we always have the gospel in one of the two other readings, and you could, uh, and you could drop the psalm. Well, they have equal authority. All scripture is inspired by God, but they've always had a special place in the church's life because it's where we hear the actual words of Jesus. You know, we actually hear his life. We actually, we don't talk about him. We actually see his life. And the reason we have special veneration is actually to remind us at the time of the gospel that we want to avoid a temptation. The temptation is to treat Jesus as a historical fact. Like, you know, we read about him and say, no, no. The reason we rise up in the symbol of Christ is saying, we are, we are going here expecting to hear from him. So we're not reading, uh, hearing about Jesus. This is not like talking about your mom and saying she's on the phone. <laughs> you know, uh, like Peter, you know, when she comes back, well, he's out, you remember with Rhoda, and she said, well, where is he? You didn't let him in. So the idea is to remind us to read the scriptures in a different way than what, while you're hearing the scriptures. That's one of the reasons we emphasize hearing rather than reading the gospel is a traditional thing. We emphasize not to be looking at a text, but you should be listening to remind yourself this isn't just reading about something. You're, you're actually want to hear, you know, Christ somehow is speaking to our hearts through the reading of this, you know, to, to be aware of that fact in a very special way. We're not reading about somebody long ago. We're talking about something right now is speaking to you. You know, just the Lord is speaking to you today. That's why we have this that, that visual prayer, uh, you know, physical prayer of saying, you know, Lord, I want open my mind, you know, you know, open me my heart, you know, put put this on my lips. I want to really digest this. I want this really to become part of me. Um, okay, uh, office lectionaries. There's either a one-year lectionary or two-year lectionary. Uh, one year if, uh, is a possibility under the new 2019 uh, uh, prayer book. Uh, now, here's the only thing I want you to know here is 
when you're really, when doing morning prayer or something, here's how they work. The idea is in the best of all possible worlds, what you do is every day you have the offices of a church, you know, and you have a Eucharist. That's ideal. Like on a Sunday, ideally a church would have morning prayer, evening prayer, and the Eucharist. That's ideal. Now, we want to have separate readings. So you're not reading the same things all the time, so we have separate readings. We choose. So that's why, on, uh, we, if you went to the Eucharist on a Sunday, you know, a Sunday, if you went to just the evening prayer or something, the evening prayer readings would be different. You know, they will they will build on the on the theme, but they'll be different as evening prayer as such. Here's the trick, though: the pride of place is always the Eucharist, so we always put our best readings for the Eucharist. So here's what happens. A lot of times we're celebrating feast days and things during the week. And we might not be having a Eucharist. You know, you'll just be getting together to have morning prayer. And so they say, wait a second, you don't want to waste the best readings. The only reason we're doing the other readings on a feast day is because we've already used the really good stuff. Like the one that's our best account of telling the best version of the story or something. We've already used that. We don't want to use it twice. Well, if you're not having Eucharist that day, you want to use the best readings. So the thing to remember is, if you don't have a Eucharist on a day, use the Eucharistic readings for feasts and Sundays. Does that make sense? Okay, now let's go to our actual topic today. Can I ask a question? Always. Okay, uh, well, uh, it depends which one. Uh, uh, we're, yeah, yeah. The, with, with the Eucharistic lectionary, what happens is, at the uh, we had a very poor lectionary in the middle of the 20th century for historical reasons why it happened. For example, in the Anglican Church, we basically had a tradition. It was mandated by law in England until the early 20th century that you had to have a morning Eucharist had to be preceded by morning prayer. Why? Because morning prayer had these really long readings. You'd read most of the Bible. And which all you had at the actual Eucharist was a, was a short reading from the epistles and the gospel. And when people stopped doing that, all they were getting for the entire Bible, if all you did when you went to church on Sundays, you'd, hear, you'd read the, the gospel passages. And also it was one year. It was only, had only one year, so you missed a lot of things. And so they wanted to have it more robust. So what happened is they had a new lectionary that they put out with the three-year cycle. That's essentially what the Romans do is almost identical to what we do. Okay. There's some small, small differences, but basically what we fall, uh, follow is uh, essentially the same, uh, the same lectionary the Romans do with some modifications, whether the passage begin or end. In a few cases, not many, there's an actual difference. Because we're trying to minimize, because we are a Catholic church, we try to minimize unnecessary difference with other Christians. That's why even people who aren't in liturgical traditions, like Presbyterians, they try to use the common lectionary. Again, because it's a beautiful sign of Christians at least reading the Bible. Well, let's do everything we can do together. Let's not put artifice. If we can do it together, let's do it together as a sign of unity. <laughs> okay, let's go to, I had it here somewhere. Uh, is that a uh, No. Is, I, that closed the wrong one. Okay, I'll have to open one here. So we're going to open now as the excitement builds. We're going to show the, uh, this is um, confirmation and absolution. Uh, here we go. This is really exciting stuff because seriously, you're going to have a lot of questions about this, and it's probably uh, a lot of us have areas we just don't know that much about relatively things that we really know. That's typical. That's why we do training events, is we have these gaps. And this is going to be one of my 
Uh, we're going to talk about three things. A lot of people are color me clueless with confirmation or absolute. I don't know. What do we actually believe? What is, what's going on here? So let's, let's clarify. We're going to talk about background, some background for both of them. And then we're going to talk about confirmation. And we're going to talk about absolution or confession. We as Anglicans prefer the term absolution. Okay. Now some background. Okay. Remember we talked about sacraments of the gospel, baptism and Eucharist. We talked a lot about those. Had a whole uh, thing on that. And then we have other things. Now, the, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church talk about the seven sacraments. Actually, Henry VIII wrote a book defending them. Uh, we actually be with Henry in this sense that we think there's a big difference. We want to emphasize the unique characteristics of, bapti of baptism and uh, Eucharist. But we still think that the other five are, well, they're just not at the same level. So that's why we prefer typically not to call them the same thing. So some people are, uh, will call them the sacraments of the church as opposed to the sacraments of the gospel, or they will call them sacramental rites. That's what I prefer to call them, the sacramental rites. That's like confirmation, absolution, ordination, marriage. And, and what are the common features? What do, what do baptism and Eucharist share with sacramental rites? Like, you know, confirmation or Eucharist or, or holy matrimony or, or, you know, ordination, anointing of the sick. Both of them are outward and visible signs. We do something, right? Baptism, right? We pour water. We say, I baptize you in the name of the Father. Eucharist, right? We have bread and wine. Every one of them has an outward sign. And everyone has an inward grace. Something actually happens. And one is related to the other. The one happens because of the other. The two are connected. It's an effective sign. It does what it signifies. So those we all share. So you say, what's the difference then? The difference is sacraments of the gospel are actually commanded. Remember, they're a mandate. Jesus said, do this. and you know, Make disciples, baptizing them. We have a command from Jesus. Sacramental rites, we don't have a command. We simply have this is the practice of the church or a state of life blessed by God from creation. And baptism and Eucharist, everybody needs. This is for every Christian needs that. We don't say, here's an extra plus in your Christian life. You know, when we turn to the Lord, we need to be baptized. And we need to meet with, with the community and break bread together. We need to do those things, everybody. Whereas sacramental rites, not everybody has to get married or be ordained. You know, they, those are not essential. Those are, you know, those are not necessary for everyone. So how are they different from sacramentals? Things like the sign of the cross and things. Sacramentals are, are, sacramental rites are effective. They actually do something. When the priest pronounces absolution, you know, I absolve you for your sins. Jesus said, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. You're, whereas sacramentals are just customs and use like a wedding ring. If I put it on, doesn't make me married. If I take it off, doesn't make me single. They're beautiful. They can be very helpful. They can create a real emotional response, which is valuable. But they don't actually do anything inherently. We know when someone is baptized, no matter how we feel, that something has happened. If someone came in faith, even if they're not that enthused, that you know, they came in faith, I, we know it's done. Whereas sacramental signs are only as good as the reaction they create. Okay. Let's talk about confirmation. This, in theological terms, is the hardest, uh, hardest sacrament to deal with. There's a whole vast literature on confirmation. Okay, so first of all, it's rooted in baptism. So let's look at something. In baptism, we find in the New Testament that clearly being baptized is connected with the Holy Spirit. It's clearly, these two are linked somehow. The Holy Spirit and baptism are linked. At the same time, the link isn't absolute. So let's talk about both of those. First of all, what do we mean that there's evidence of a clear tie? Well, look here in Titus. He says he saved us not because of righteousness, things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
So he's putting the washing of rebirth, that's our baptism, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The two are just tied. Uh, Peter, uh, on the very day of Pentecost, says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's telling him to get baptized, and immediately he says, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. When they were arguing about Cornelius, remember he had to go to Jerusalem and saying, is it right for these people? He said, what can I do? How, if they receive the Holy Spirit, you know, the two go together. How can I not baptize them? So clearly, right, there's a link between, somehow there's a link between baptism and the Holy Spirit. But it's not absolute. For example, in Acts of the Apostles, he greets a group at Ephesus who turned to the Lord Jesus. They believed in Jesus. He was excited. Hey, hey, they wanted to meet with him. Hey, we found, we're, you know, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? Remember what their answer was? We didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. He said, well, what kind of baptism did you have? And he said, oh, the baptism of John. He said, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and then what happens? Look at what he says here. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came. So notice they emphasize there are two acts. That first of all, he baptized them, and then he places his hands on them. It's even clearer in Acts of the Apostles in chapter 8. There had been baptisms in Samaria. When the, and then the news got back to Jerusalem. But when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now look at the explanation. Why did this have to happen? Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So there's clearly a tie. These should go together. Hey, they were baptized, but, you know, Send, you know, send Peter and John, who are apostles. I mean, of the, the actual circle here. So here's what happened. Originally, when people were baptized, there was a single rite, we call it a rite of initiation, is what they taught in the literature. It means that you became a full-fledged Christian. It's sort of like right now, what happens, I had the privilege recently, I was out on a business trip out in L.A., and I was going through the plaza there, and there were people who were being uh, sworn in as citizens of the United States. I was like, it's moving, you know, you have people being sworn in as citizens. And I saw right there, they were, um, they were registering, them to vote, registering them to vote. I thought, well, you're a citizen now, you should be registered to vote, putting those together. And so what happened here is when you were baptized, immediately the bishop would place his hands on you and pray, you know, anoint you for the Holy, for the Holy Spirit. And then you'd receive the Eucharist. Okay, you'd, uh, we, we talked about that, you had to receive the Eucharist. Okay. And so it was a single rite, so you renounced evil, you'd turn be immersed, the bishop again would lay his hands on you and you participate in the Eucharist. Why the bishop? Well, the bishop, that's why we only have one bishop. From this, We know in, for, it was universal in the early beginning of the second century, like Ignatius and Antioch, we can see this, is that the church is one, and so the, how do we visibly and sacramentally show, sacramentally, how do we have, what's the outward sign of the church's unity? that the church was organized around one person, one man, the bishop, the overseer, the, the elder of the elders, the overseer. And he was a communion with other, every church had one. That's what they call monarcho, but from Greek meaning alone, not meaning like king. You know, it means alone. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, he was the, um, uh, and he was in fellowship with other, how do you know other churches are legit Christmas church, church? Because they were in fellowship. The bishops had the right hand of fellowship. That's how you knew where the real church was as opposed to heretics. They were the ones who were in fellowship. And so also he had the, so it's this, he's the point of unity of the church because when, he's basically saying that you're not joining this congregation, you're joining the entire church of God. 
You know, this is bigger than any of us. And also, the example in Acts that we just read is the church always saw the, the example that basically the apostles were what became the bishops. You know, basically the, that chief overseer, Bishop Stuart is like one of the 12 apostles. You know, the bishop is really a descendant of the apostles. No, he also had disciples. Other people were sent on mission. Remember, we have both going out. Uh, like that's your priests and things. But you know, the fact is it was specifically the bishop because they were the special sign in the connection, you know, with Jesus, that special sign. How can we be sure through the connection with the bishop? So here's what the, oh, the oh, so here's what happened. How did confirmation come about? Because originally this was always done, done at the same time. Here's the practical problem that happened. Early on, Christianity, as I explained to you in a different context, was an urban phenomenon for two reasons. The first, I mean, basically only people in cities became Christians. Why? Because first of all, we didn't have a language problem. It's like English now. If you go anywhere around the world, you can find people in, Eng in any city anywhere who can, some people can speak English. Okay, so you can do that, you know, that problem. Out in the countryside, that's not true. Uh, you know, you find people, even today, you go to Quebec and things up in, uh, <coughs> you look at a map right in, like in the middle of the province, and it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's called up there, Lac Saint-Jean, Lac Saint-Jean, okay. But there's Chicoutimi, and the, et cetera. There you can all, you, of course, you can find people, but in Montreal, you know, just everybody, you know, but here, there are people who honestly don't know word of English. You know, they're off the beaten path. No one comes up there. There's no real reason to know it. They're not in the hospitality industry. They just do stuff. Why would you learn another language? They don't have any chance to use it. And so in the ancient world, people didn't speak the standard languages, but everybody spoke this type of Greek. Even in Rome, they spoke this Greek. And so that's where you could communicate with people right away. And also, it's practical to get together. Communications in the ancient world were really bad. That's why we hover around coasts and things. The only practical way to get around was by boat when it comes to actually carrying anything. And even for the famous Roman roads, they still weren't very practical. There weren't many of them and they weren't terribly. It was hard to get around. It was a big deal to try to get around. So what happens is originally the idea is the whole church had to, the whole church had to get together for Eucharist because it's a sign of unity. You'd never have more multiple Eucharists going on because that's our sign of unity. It's like having different Thanksgivings. The whole family gets together for Thanksgiving. So what happened like in cities like Rome where there are just too many people, they had satellite churches. And that's where you get the idea of the bishop uh, uh, delegating one of his elders to actually, on, to be his delegate, that's the priest on his behalf at these other churches. But what happened when we really got into the, the countryside? Where these people, there's no practical way they can get in here, but we need to have Eucharist and they, we don't want to have bishop in every church because we're not congregational. We want to emphasize unity. That would emphasize disunity. So here's what they ended up doing. They're saying, okay, uh, we will... Uh, you can go and get ahead and get baptized in the church, but what we want you to do is, we, what, what are we going to do? Because the bishop's not there. You're way away. It's very impra impractical. So two different answers. In the Eastern Church, they said, well, we've delegated the Eucharist. Let's just delegate uh, that as well. So in the Eastern Church, what they have is when you're baptized as a, as a child, you also receive the laying on the hands and an anointing. They delegate the priest to do that, you know, just as they delegate the, the priest to, to celebrate the Eucharist. In the Western Church, we said, no, people need to have the bishop do that. That ought to be, once in your life, you need to meet your bishop, <laughs> and he should pray for you. So that's how we ended up having two separate rites. So we said, basically, we'll baptize you now, but wait till the bishop gets here, and he'll lay his hands on there. You with me? That's only in the West. Now, here's something beautiful that happens, one of those divine, serendipitous things that God brings about. As more and more people became Christians and it spread, it took longer and longer for the bishop to get around. 
in a world where transportation was very dangerous and difficult. So what would happen is when he'd finally get there, you were, you were much older now, relatively speaking, and one of the things they did is that they wanted to remind you this was confirmation. The confirmation refers to something else, like confirming your reservation means you had a reservation. So confirmation is saying we're sort of finishing up what we did at the baptismal ceremony. That's where it gets the name confirmation. We're sort of finishing up. And so remember like in a television show and you say in our last episode, here's what happened? So their way of doing it in our last episode when you were a child, they would recite the baptismal creed because that's what you did before you were baptized. I believe in God, you know, etc. And what's really neat, now you're old enough to say it yourself. That was just accidental. But people love that. They say, isn't this great that I can actually make my own profession now? I'm old enough that I can publicly declare what I couldn't when I was a baby. So that was only incidental to basically say, oh, here, remember when you were baptized? Well, here's our episode. Now I'm joining with everybody saying this. Okay, now you're going to get confirmed. So this is, um, so this is what, uh, what's going to happen in the Western uh, Church confirmed at baptism. Now here's the practical result. So we end up with a separate sacramental rite called confirmation. They call chrismation in the East. And here's where the whole idea came that the confirmation had something to do with reaffirming your faith. Originally, that was just accidental, but it was beautiful. People really loved that and said, wow, this is great. And so what they had is, so, and at the time of the Reformation, the Reformers said, we need to keep this. This is really, really good. People need to do this. Because the Reformers certainly believed, Luther and Calvin, with what you told me, that we call them, if you're unfamiliar with it, that is called the Magisterial Reformation. Are you familiar with that term? The Reformation with the classic reformers, the, the, three, the three parts of the Magisterial, uh, ma- that means the official Reformation. Magisterial means teach you the official Reformation is Luther, Calvin, and the Anglicans. That's the Magisterial, the Anabaptists where everybody do your own thing. I, that, I don't mean that dismissively, but it wasn't organized. You know, people just, you know, and so that, it's not led by a leader or a teacher. You know, it's just sort of, you know, spontaneous. The Magisterial Reformation, everybody maintains infant baptism. Okay, so uh, they like this idea, so this personal affirmation of faith is something important. Now, all Christian, uh, let's see here, okay. Okay, I want to make sure, okay. Now, all, what, that's, we have a misunderstanding here. No one denies you received the Holy Spirit at your baptism, by the way. No one's saying, well, you mean I was, if I received the baptism, I haven't been confirmed? I received, no, no, of course not. You couldn't be baptized in because part of baptism is regeneration in the Holy Spirit. You're born anew in the Holy Spirit. But there's a difference between the presence of the Holy Spirit, that sanctifying presence. Remember I said baptism is like, uh, what happens at baptism? is remember we say we're created in the image and likeness of God. In the Western church, we say it's like this. You never lose the image of God, even with sin. Adam was still in the image of God. When God created the ta- told Moses to build the tabernacle, he did it. But what happened? God wasn't there. It was just sort of a house for God to, to make himself manifest in. It's when this cloud, this bright cloud comes in of his glory. Ah, God is presence. With Solomon's temple, the same thing happens. He builds this beautiful temple, and he prays, and it's only when the cloud comes. Ah, you know, that means the Spirit of God is actually dwelling in this place. The place where I'll cause my name to dwell, is what they say in the Torah. Okay. What happens in, in uh, Ezekiel when people are unfaithful? He sees the, the cloud lifting up and leaving the temple. So it's like this. What happened with sin with all of us? The result was the, the image of God, the temple was there. This, it's like the cloud left. 
we no longer have sanctifying grace. We no longer have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We need to be born again in the Spirit to share God's actual, you know, his divine life. So in baptism, everyone receives the Holy Spirit. We, that's, that's our, however, there's another work that we talk about, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are for the church. It says to everyone is given a gift for the common good. And so what we pray for is that's a question of with Paul, you know, something dramatic happened to those guys. They, they start speaking, they're doing, they, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, this, the release of this, of the, of the special, of the, of, of what the Holy Spirit's empowerment to serve the church in our unique way. You know, the special gifts we get released, divinely released. They're there in our baptism. It's sort of like the, we open the presents. You know, there it's like this releasing of those gifts. So when they were baptized, they had received the presence of the Holy Spirit. What the, the apostles put was for this impartation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, pray for the gifts, the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so traditionally what we say is basically what we have in confirmation is a combination of empowerment for service, simply saying an opening and a strengthening of the gift we have, or the gifts we have that God's given for his church. And also perseverance, that special strength. Remember Jesus said, if you have to give an answer before, don't worry about it. I will actually give you the Spirit to speak. You know, praying for that special miraculous grace of the Holy Spirit to be at work for the release. We're praying up, laying on it. It's like a, like a, basically, I call it lay ordination. It's basically in the name of the church, you know, saying we're releasing this gift, you know, for the church. So, the ACNA Catechism tells us that it's a mature, uh, after making a mature commitment, uh, I receive the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer. So what's the, what do I get? He strengthens the work of the Holy Spirit in me at, for my Christian life and ministry. So you have that idea of, of strengthening and releasing, you know, you know uh, our, our gift. Now, what about those already confirmed? I have, this sort of summarizes it, but here's what you need to understand. As Anglicans, we're both and. So we emphasize, you know, for the Eastern Orthodox, for example, to them, the, the confirmation is only about this prayer for the Holy Spirit. For many Protestant traditions, it's only about your adult declaration that I believe this. It's adult declaration of faith, like a graduation. But it's nothing more than that. For us, we're, we're Reformed Catholics. We believe it's both. We say everybody at some time in their life should receive the prayer for the Holy Spirit, you know, that, that lay ordination, the prayer for, and everybody should make a public profession of their faith at some time in their life. So we think it should be both. And so what we have is we have people coming to us from different traditions. And when we come, we're not criticizing what they've done. We're simply saying we want to make sure that everybody in their walk who comes to us has both. So if you come from a church, like if you were, if you were confirmed as an Eastern Orthodox, meaning when you were baptized, we're still going to lay our hands on you, but we're, going, we're doing this in the context of you're now making a public adult profession of faith. If you're someone who's made that in, in your Presbyterian church, saying, God bless you for it, that was important, we now let you make that again with the prayer for the Holy Spirit. We're making sure that everybody has both. That's all. So instead of saying what you had was false, it was, no, saying no, it's great. We want to build, we want to, you know, we want to have, make sure everybody has both. Both and, which is very Anglican. And everything else here about the, um, a, about the ceremonies and things is going to, uh, is going to, and matter of fact, we call a reception. When somebody comes from another tradition where they've had a confirmation, uh, and let's say they've had both done. Let's say they were confirmed as an adult, you know, in the, uh, in the, uh, they're confirmed as an adult in a church with the laying on of hands of bishops in apostolic succession. 
you know, they were like a Roman Catholic. They've had both. What happens in that case? Well, we say we, we call it um, a, um, uh, a reception. It means we receive you. We're recognizing you. It's like changing your voter registration. Is I don't have to be, I am a U.S. citizen. I've lived in three different states for periods of 10 years or more of my life. And every time I change a state, is I don't have to become a citizen that way. I am. I'm an, I'm an American anywhere I go, but I do have to change my voter registration. I have to say, I'm not, I'm not rejecting anything. I'm simply saying, now my primary place where I'm going to exercise my citizenship is here. This is the primary place where I'll exercise my citizenship. I'm trying to say, I'm, I'm here. I'm engaged here. And we say, we receive you. You're full, you know, you're, you're, you're one of us. You're now, you're now from Illinois, you're in, you know, or whatever they call people here, Illinois. Illinoisan? Illinois is for the team, I know. It's not, okay. Okay. And so the solution then is that we just, uh, so again, anyone who comes to us, we basically say, if you reckon, we, everybody should have those two things happen. They should make a public declaration and they should receive a prayer by, by a bishop for the, you know, for the, uh, you know, for the, um, for the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do at this ceremony. And if you're from another tradition, we just want to welcome you home. You know, somebody say, of course you're an American. We just want to welcome you. You're gonna, now you're a Tennessean. You know, now you're uh, someone from Illinois. And uh, so with that, we call it reception, so we don't want to offend people needlessly if from another tradition. But what's going to happen is we're going to lay on hands, and we're going to do whatever's missing, or just pray, uh, pray for, to re reaffirm, like a reaffirmation in the case of people who are being received. That's why we have different prayer cards for different people coming forward. What about lapsed Christians? Well, lapsed Christians like baptism, I think what we do here is we have a reaffirmation, where people can simply say, I've wandered from the Lord, like we do that at baptism sometimes. You know, we can simply say, this is the time. I want to reaffirm. Or let's say, often this is, is more of a time where I haven't wandered far from the Lord. I've just been pretty lukewarm. I've been going through the motions for a long time, etc. I really want to, you know, so this is because of another option, like with renewal of our baptism. Normally we do renewal of baptisms when people have really wandered far from the Lord. Reaffirmation tends to be more that I've just, you know, it's not like I've had some dramatic story, you know, telling I've been a serial killer, you know, and, uh, you know, a mercenary or what have you in the slave trade is saying, you know, actually, I just have not been living the Christian life. I, I really want to bring it to a new place. I want to really... Basic structure, renewal of the baptismal covenant, of course, always, and then we simply have a general prayer for everybody, and then a prayer depending on which of those categories you're in. And we can read those at your leisure. And what's the, sometimes people say, well, I don't want to become an Anglican. Do I have to, that mean, I, I, want to, I love Brez, and I want to be part of this, and have Stuart as my bishop, but I'm, and here's all we're saying. Again, we, as Anglicans, don't see ourselves as simply part of something much bigger. We're part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic. We've never claimed to be the one true church. There's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So, but our view is like being an American, is to be an American, to, you, yeah, you're a citizen, but you have to be a citizen somewhere. You have to be fully engaged somewhere. For example, you can't generically vote, right? You have to be a citizen. You, to vote, you have to be in a community somewhere. I can't say I'm an American just walking in anywhere and vote saying, no, you have to be engaged in our community. You have to be registered here. You have to be part, you have to be, you can't just be wandering through. You have to be part of the community. You have, every American has to be hooked in somewhere. And we're simply saying this, confirmation means, as far as being an Anglican, that this is where I'm hooking into the church. I'm not saying people aren't in Illinois or in Americans. Of course they were. I was from Wisconsin. I was from Tennessee. But I'm simply saying this is where I'm hooked in to the one holy, you know, this is where I'm hooked into America. Here's where I'm hooked into the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now let's talk about absolution or confession, okay? And biblical roots. 
The very night of our Lord's resurrection, he came and he said, I love this, he breathed on them and said, remember, breath is in spirit in Greek, pneuma is spirit. And in Greek and Hebrew, it's so lost in English, is to breathe, is to, to breathe breath, wind, and spirit all the same. So it's like he, he's put the spirit on them. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, like he's actually, <laughs> receive the Holy Spirit. And what's the, op- what's the proof of that? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness of any, it is withheld. This is from the very mouth of the Lord. He gave his church power to forgive sins. Not to say your sins are already forgiven, you can just, uh, just remind people and comfort them. He say we have the power to forgive sins. Now, historical development, this originally was only used in, in connection with what we call notorious public sins. The word notorious, by the way, you should know. A lot of English speakers don't realize its technical meaning both in law and in church history and things. Is we want to distinguish, it means everybody knows about it. If everybody knows about something good, we call it famous. If everything knows about something bad, we call it notorious. Okay, that's the only difference. It means everybody knows. I'm not telling you anything. You know, everybody knows. Either famous or notorious. Because we want to make a distinction between being famous and what you want to be famous for. Hey, you know, like our bishop or something. This is, look at, you know, wow, this is great. Or like, you know, being something, someone who's done something horrible. You know, something, well, we, we said that's not, that's not the same thing at all as being well known for a bad thing. So originally it was for notorious uh, sin. Actually, it's sort of a, uh, it's uh, notorious uh, public, I mean, everybody knows about it in the church. And those, the big three here were apostasy. During a persecution, you actually denied Jesus. Uh, murder, uh, which uh, was remarkably common in the ancient world. Why? Uh, you didn't have regular police forces. People often got killed in, in, in uh, family fights. And remember, how, you, how do you keep from not getting uh, hassled all the time is families had to do their own police work. It was a vendetta system, like the mob still uses. You get one of mine, we get one of yours. So there was a lot of that going on in the ancient world. I mean, for us, probably none of us, thank God, know anyone who's been murdered or been involved with a murder. In the ancient world, everybody would have somebody who'd been killed violently. Because everybody would know somebody got killed violently in a fight or something. So it was much more common. And then adultery, which is a really, uh, really big deal. Not sexual sin per se, adultery. Um, if, uh, the, all sexual sin is serious. But I'm saying what they, the trouble is something you might not understand with the Bible, and so women won't misunderstand this. this is not, people sometimes say, how come women are seen to be treated more severely than men for adultery? The sexual component is true of everybody. But what made adultery especially bad sin in the ancient world was this. Most people especially didn't believe in eternal life, which is most people. Or they'd have something like the Romans, yeah, land of shades, but no one really, you know, sort of, well, might, no one's had any expectations of that. Uh, so here's what would, would happen is your whole hope was your family chain. You lived on in your children. You see a lot of that in the Old Testament, you know, before we, it becomes more and more clear. You live on in your children. So here's the horrible thing about adultery. If a woman commits adultery, she might have a child by another man, so I might be raising somebody else's child. And you say, what's hard with that? Well, this is why, excuse me, what about my own children? It means somebody else is going to take the inheritance of generations that is going to be stolen by an outsider. Because that means my own children now will not have this. It's going to go to somebody else's kid. My own children are going to go hungry, you know, somebody else's kid gets the money. And so it was a property crime. It was considered about the worst possible thing you could do. This is, by the way, why Joseph, you might not understand that passage, 
had no choice but to divorce once he knew Mary had appeared to be unfaithful. He couldn't say, well, I'll just treat him like my own. No, that would be unfaithful. That'd be wrong for his kids. That is not his child. His physical child has a right to this. He has no right to substitute because in the ancient world they believe that you're that you have a lot, you don't get to choose what you did with your stuff. We can say, here's the people I like, they get to, when I die, they get stuff. No. In the ancient world, your stuff was was dealt based on a fixed formula. You had a, that's why the prodigal son. How come he gave the money to the younger kid? Why would he do that? Because it was the kid's money. He owned it. He was just a buyout. By virtue of being his son, he was a co-owner of the business now. It was simply a buyout. We'd say, well, gee, he didn't have Yes, he did. The kid owned it. Okay. Does that make more sense to you then? So the um, so adultery was really that's why Joseph had no choice. He said, I have to, I have to put her away because this would be this would be actually a crime against the Torah. I cannot substitute somebody else for my own children. I don't have the right. It's not my money to give. It's their money. I can't cheat them. But I, I love Mary, and so I, I can do it privately so she doesn't have to have any shame, and yet do, that's why. So if you, that explains the mystery, by the way. Other people, isn't that mean that he want to keep the kid? That would have been unrighteous. That would have been unfair to his own children as in Jewish law. Okay, so what happened to these public sins? So it wasn't primarily a sexual thing. That's what women get the, to this day, when you go to, a, when you get a G Jewish divorce, you go to the Bet Din, which is the Jewish religious court. They ritually tell the man, you can marry this afternoon if you wish. To the woman, they say, you can't marry for 90 days. And why? <laughs> They'll like their three months or something, because they have to be long enough to determine they're not pregnant. So that we'll know that whatever happens, she can't say, oh, I was already pregnant with your child. So there could be no possible doubt about the child. So it has nothing to do with women being more sexual. They, would, they didn't look at it the way at all. It's just a, a practical matter. Uh, this, uh, there's property. Because in ancient world, marriage was not primarily about love. It was primarily about property and, and things. It's primarily about, there was no safety net. You, know, you had to be connected to a unit. It's like a job. You might love your job, but a lot, everybody has to have one whether you love it or not. <laughs> everybody has to have a job. You might have the good blessing to have a job you love, but a lot of people know. I just have to, everyone had to get married. It's really great if you actually married someone. They were arranged. Someone I love, this is great. This is a plus. But everyone has to be married, <laughs> practically speaking. Okay. So originally it was only for these big public sins because otherwise the church could be scandalized. If people just committed a sin and just like act like nothing had happened, imagine if somebody killed somebody and came in next Sunday for communion saying, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Whoa, what's the message we're having? We, must, we mustn't take, in the, take this very seriously. So they were worried about giving a bad example that we don't see, not about punishing, but a bad example. Are we saying this isn't a big deal? We want to, we want to be open to these people, but we, don't, we want to do it in a way that doesn't say, oh, just say you're sorry and move on. You know, we, don't, we don't want to cheapen the nature of serious sin. Now, later on, here's one of the problems that happened, practically speaking. You know, you don't want to, one of the th terrible things that used to happen to women, like with rape trials and things, is they'd say it's worse than the rape. I mean, all these people and all the details coming up, you know, I'm getting, you know, how come I'm like a second victim? Hello. And they're saying, okay, this uh, well, adultery wasn't a public sin. You know, it's a serious sin, you know, but it was in public. If it finds out saying, okay, it's bad enough this guy's cheated on me. You know, things. So now we have to tell the whole church so everybody in the city will know. What will I say to the rest of my kids, etc.? Anya, this is, you know, they're saying, we don't, want, we don't want collateral damage. So they're basically saying private sin, private confession, because you're more likely to scandalize and, and have the victims victimized. That makes sense. So that's where private confession originally came was, we don't want innocent people hurt by your sins. <laughs> 
So that's where the original idea of came a private confession. Because people said, look, I didn't commit a notorious wife. But this is serious. No one knows about this, but I've been cheating on my wife. It's, it's bad. It's evil. I want the church's forgiveness by saying, we don't want to embarrass your children and your family by doing this in front of everybody. Yeah, you might find this, but what about them? Especially in a world that you have no idea because I'm, I'm saying seriously, because I've lived through this, through the sexual revolution. These things were, were life busters on the other side. You have a reputation like this, your marriageability, all this kind of stuff starts crumbling. This, we don't take sex seriously in this society today. None of that would people would laugh. They didn't in the old days. <laughs> you know, so it was a big deal. Now, let's, having gone through the background, okay, so we have confession. Why, you say, why do we confess to somebody else? Here's, here's one reason. First of all, sin doesn't just defend against Christ. We say Christ, church is Christ's body. It's like this. Let's suppose you're on a team, an athletic team. Look, let's say on a track team. And you guys have been really working out for this meet. You're going to really take the state championship. This is great. But sadly, you're not necessarily great. You're not Christians. These are just secular guys. So you're going out, getting a little ready the night before, and uh, you drink a little too much. You're not crazy drunk or something. You drink too much, and the next day you're not really at top of your form. You're not top of your game. You're not staggering around, but you're not, you know, you have sort of a headache. You're just not really what you should have been. You should have been to bed early. You stayed up too late, and you had some alcohol. So guess what? You guys did pretty well, but because you just were under the notch, you didn't pick it up. You could have done it if you'd just, you know, just done, gone to bed and done the regular thing. You sort of spoiled it for the team. So the idea is that not just you saying, I've really hurt, I've dis I'm disappointed. What about these guys? We're a team. And so we're saying as Christians, this is a profound truth. Every time I commit a sin, whether you know about it, I'm letting you down because I'm part of this body. You're my brothers and sisters, but we're, we're, we're part of the body. We're all tied together. When I sin, I'm not being the Christian I need to be for you. And that's true of everything. That's nothing, I'm not talking about being a priest. I'm talking about any of us as Christians. I'm not being the Christian you deserve to have, you know, that you need to have. I can't be that person in sin. So it's basically reminding us that sin works both ways. We don't just offend God. We're also, you know, like this prodigal, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Is rather saying, oh, yeah, I said against heaven. What about, you know, we, we basically, the first thing they do in, in one of the early steps in the 12 step program is we have to make right with the people we've hurt. I've been going around with my addiction, destroying other people's lives. Well, it's time. The first step is to start saying, I'm really sorry. You know, I'm taking, I'm taking, because, you know, I, I'm taking, uh, what, what's the English? Um, um, there must be a colloquial say, take responsibility. I'm owning up. I'm owning up to this. Okay. So, uh, does that make sense? So one of the reasons we do is to remind us sacramentally of the fact that it's not just me and Jesus. I'm part of a body. And never to forget that I, and this is true no matter what, even if our secret sins, we're, our personal holiness affects how effective we can be with others, how much we can be a vessel of God's grace to others and our gift. So maybe no one knows but you and God, but it means somehow, again, if I'm, if I'm not getting my sleep the night before, if I stay up watching a Netflix thing where I'm going to go uh, next tomorrow and I'm going to, you know, in the, in, the, in the meat. Maybe you never know, like going out drinking or something, but the fact is, I'm not there for you. I can't be for you in the same way. So it reminds us of that. The other is the assurance of forgiveness. Now, I'm here to tell you absolutely that all of us can go to God and ask forgiveness and know he will forgive us. Let, no doubts. We are not like Roman Catholics who believe certain sins can only be forgiven if you go to a priest. We don't believe that. However, here's the difference. Let me tell you something from my world as a CPA, okay? For people who practice tax law, here's one of the problems. A lot of times, we have to take tax and do calculations. We don't know if we're going to make money until we figure out after taxes. 
after taxes are we actually making money? Okay, now here's the problem. Sometimes we find that what allows us to create a new business that's successful is because of a we call it a tax advantage. Because of some fluke in the tax code, as we understand that this would allow us to make this profitable. If we didn't have that tax advantage, for example, my brother has combined ministry uh, with, uh, with making a living. This, uh, what he does, his special gift has been to take people who have serious disabilities and find them jobs. He loves doing it. I mean, things that they're really good at. I mean, it's a gift. I love to have you talk about it. it just, I, I, I weep when he tells me about these beautiful stories of people, everybody that can do something. And he doesn't find people just want to throw them in the corner. And, you know, he actually finds things they can do. He's a genius at it. It's a gift from God. But he found the state of Wisconsin had special grants that they could use, you know, that they could give to the employer saying, if you hire this person, not only is this, I can, this person's going to do a good job. They could really do this job well for you. The very things that make them handicapped, you know, the fact that they, they concentrate on one thing, they, they make them perfect for this job. You know, that, I love that. But he said the state of Wisconsin will actually help pay part of their salary for a year. So that kind of thing, you take advantage of that fact. Okay. So here's the problem. Uh, when you're a CPA, you're authorized to tax, to practice like a lawyer before tax courts. You're actually legally authorized to practice before the tax courts. However, here's the trouble. If I, in my professional opinion, think, I think this meets the test and we can set up this business, but the whole business won't work unless we have that tax advantage, unless we have that advantage. What if later on somebody in the IRS disagrees, saying, ah, oh, you read it this way, but I read it that way. Well, they win because they're the ones who, who actually do this thing. I could be in a really hard position. I thought, I would, I really, I'm an expert, I thought this is true, but at the end of the day, the decision is made by somebody who's at the IRS. They're the judge. So in order to help us with this, we have a special provision, which is called a, um, you know, we have a special, uh, like a tax letter uh, ruling. And what that is, is I can send a letter to the IRS under certain circumstances in advance saying, here is my understanding of the code. I want an advance ruling from you before we spend all this money, because we're not even going to go there if this doesn't work. You know, here is our case. Will you validate? You know, it's called a you know, private tax ruling. Will you validate? And that means they can't change their mind. Now I know for a sure thing that, you know, I don't have to worry that somebody else in the bureaucracy got my case. I say, here's my tax letter. You know, we went through, we have a ruling. Okay, so it's like this. Sometimes people, especially with certain types of serious sins, just find it very hard to believe that God has forgiven them. Because the, the enemy's always telling us that, right? He's always going, yeah, your sin is too big for God. You know, your sin is too big, you know. Other sins, yeah, but this is a real sin. This is too big for God. And so, especially like some types of sexual sins and things, people really can't get past. Or if they've done something, they really feel bad, and they get, get past so what we have here is this absolution from a priest is like a private letter ruling. It says, you know, that you can count on it. I'm giving you my word. Jesus is saying to you, it is forgiven. And it's an effective word. You know, Jesus said, who sins you forgive, they are forgiven. So a person no longer has to, uh, they have God's sacramental assurance of this forgiveness. Now, what about confessions with people who aren't other priests? We do that because there's a value to acknowledging to the community. But there's a difference. What we do there is we simply remind people, we're simply reminding them of the gospel truth that if you've truly confessed your sins to God, God does forgive us. We're reminding them that truth, but we can't give them that personal assurance. You know, we can simply say, yes, we can, t we can remind them of the gospel says that all of us who truly repent and confess are forgiven. We, and that's valuable. I can remind you of that. That's what we say in the absolute. We don't mean the absolute. We simply say, you know, I'm, I remind you that God forgives, you know, sins. So you, you have every reason to be. Whereas a priest can say, 
let's have this down. I know you've worried about this the last 20, I've had people, the last 20 years, this has been on your heart. You just can't believe it. Well, I'm here to tell you, in the name of God himself, it's gone. It's forgotten. It's done. Okay. So we never require this. In, in the Roman Catholic Church, this is required for serious sins. You know, you, uh, uh, so we talk about absolution. Uh, you know, hear what it is, the uh, grace. You know, he said, God, the priest declares God's forgiveness to be with authority given by God. You know, so it's only priest. What we do with lay confession isn't really confession. It's not absolution that way. It's, a, it's, it's simply a nice thing to do, but it do, it's not a sacrament. The sacrament requires a priest. Okay. Okay, assurance of grace and salvation. Now, uh, we've talked about that. Uh, need for care, and then we're going to talk about something really important about confession I don't want us to leave here without talking about, is need for care is that we do this very well in the church by giving people a document, but you might be out here, if you're a lay person with confession, is we don't want to have a bait and switch. In this state, as in a number of states, a priest, no matter, there is no mandatory reporting ever for, um, you know, I, there's, I would never under any situation be legally compelled to testify what tell, someone tells me under the seal of confession. No matter what, there, I've never, is there mandatory reporting. If somebody molested a child, there is no, I never have to tell anyone. That allows a lot of people who would never talk to somebody. It's sort of like when they go to the attorney, has the same privilege. <laughs> If they go to their attorney for something, you know, what's said here, because otherwise, if there's not somebody you can open up to, <laughs> well, the answer, people simply won't open up. <laughs> um, and so what happens, that, that does not apply to lay people. And so they are mandatory reporters of things. And so it seems unfair for people, we call them, they all look the same, you know, for people not to realize before they commit themselves so they don't feel like they have a bait and switch is to tell people, and we do have a little thing explaining to them so they have no doubts about this, uh, that they don't think that, gee, I thought, you know, this, and uh, so we, normally, you know, it's something, it's something you just give people paper explaining, here's a confession, just have that as one of those, like, legal notices, you know, is, is fine. Now, let me talk about five traditional elements because this is really important to make confession what it should be. And this is very ancient, uh, uh, it's over a thousand years we've been doing it this way, is there are five elements of traditional confession. These are talking about prudential now. And how to make a good confession means how we understand these. First of all, confession should be about specific things we've done wrong. As a priest, it happens to me all the time that I hear a confession and no one said anything they did wrong. At all. Not a single fault. So unless they're a saint, I'm, I'm at a loss. So there are two things that you hear a lot. People confess generic vices. I get angry, fill in the blank. You know, I, you know, drink too much or this kind of thing. That's good as far as it goes, but I don't know when you get angry. Tell me specifically, when did you get angry? <laughs> because that really makes a difference. There's anger and there's anger. You know, it's, it's simply say it's not like this, you know, because part of it is for us to identify when this is happening in our life. That really makes a spiritual difference. You know, it's sort of a comfort of saying, it's like saying all have done something. It's like when everybody owns something, nobody owns something. That's the story of socialism. By the way, why everybody, when in any situation, I once belonged to a state motor pool. When everybody owns a car, nobody owns a car. Everything's treated like a junker. You know, <laughs> why, you know, that, that type of sense. So, uh, so people need, and also a lot of what I hear in confession is, I need to be a better father. I be, you know, fill in the blank. That's not a confession, that's just a, a request for a pep talk. Um, that's true, that's a nice desire, but confession is we should talk. Every, all of us have it because sometimes we don't know what we need to ask. 
the beautiful thing about confession isn't make us feel bad. It's often we go through and say, yeah, I, I've actually, I, it's not like I could be a better dad. No, I've done some wrong things. I, how I treated my son when he did something wrong wasn't right. Not just, oh, I could be a better dad. That's not, it's like saying, you know, like a serial killer saying I could be more loving. That's true. But that's only half of the problem. You know, maybe not killing people is a good, a good start. Okay. So we got to know the symptoms. This is really important. So basically, we, we need to ask people to action. This is good. We don't want to people feel bad. But we should simply say the best way to know how can I get right with God is what am I actually doing specifically that's wrong? And so it's like, here's, not that I get mad, but here's what I do when this happens. And here's what I do when I get mad. I shout, or I, I swear at them, or I say horrible things. That's the sin. Let's get this, because then we know the deeper sin, as opposed to, you know, anger means you just feel a little irritated, you know, just that kind of thing. We don't know what the sin is. It's like going to a doctor and saying, you know, doc, I don't, you know, I don't feel right. My head doesn't feel right. Now, she could be the best graduate of Princeton Medical School, but you could say, she's got to say, well, I need more than that to really help you. That's nice. I, you know, good. I know it's not your leg. But, but, you know, to really know, tell me somewhat of the symptoms, you know, or I need to more of the symptoms, because then I really know what, what we're talking about here. Are we talking about epilepsy? Are we talking about brain tumor? What are we talking about? I need to know. Okay. Next thing is contrition. This is really important. Contrition is why are we sorry? There are two reasons we could be sorry. Let me back up and say, I bet we've all had this experience, haven't we? Somebody comes and tells you they're sorry, and you get this feeling, wait a second. They're not sorry they hurt me. They're sorry because they don't like feeling bad. They said some horrible thing to me in front of a bunch of people or something. They come back, oh, I'm sorry. And you realize, oh, they feel like a bad person. They don't want to feel like a bad person. They, they don't care that they hurt me. Maybe, I mean, you know, this is like the prodigal son. It's a classic case of not contrition. He doesn't say, how could I have done this to my dad? My dad loved me, cared for me, did everything for me, and I made him look like a fool. I walked away from town. Probably it's the only thing anybody's talked about for the last three years. You know, I've done all this. That would have been contrition. Wow, how could I do this to my dad? It's all about him. Oh, gee, this is just not working out. I, I better, be, better be back to dad, take a lecture, and get a job. I'll probably be better than this. So contrition means what we really should be sorry about is that we hurt God. Now, what people often are sorry about is what we call attrition in theology. In theology, attrition means I'm sorry about what happens as a result of sin. I'm sorry that I feel bad. I'm sorry I'm going to be punished. I'm sorry I might go to hell. You know, that's attrition. Those are good things to be sorry about, but it's like every criminal, I assure you, is sorry he got caught. You know, ask a cop. Everyone is sorry they got caught. That's real, but the real thing should be I broke the law. I stole from somebody. You see the difference contrition would mean I hurt that person. Uh, you know, I hurt God. I hurt that person other than, oh, I wrecked my life. It's all about me. And the knife got bloody. Now I've got to clean the knife too. No, 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 that's, that's backwards. So again, our goal is we should uh, really, and this is why sometimes people want confession, particularly, is in theology, the only thing that gets forgiveness from God is contrition. Just being sorry because, gee, you don't like feeling guilty, you don't want to go to hell, is not good enough. The actual forgiveness of sin requires us to be sorry. It means not sorry I sinned, sorry I sinned against God. And so a lot of people say, well, I'm sort of mixed. I have elements of both. And good enough, but, you know, confession helps assure us that that's good enough, that even though it's not perfect, you know, gee, I, I'm sorry I hurt God, but I've got to tell you, I'm probably more worried about other stuff. Well, we can simply say good enough. You know, like that's what every sacrament is about, saying I'll do the heavy lifting. 
so it can help it get us past attrition. Again, we don't want to confuse being sorry because, gee, it hurts. You know, I've, I've, boy, this has messed up my life. For, and that's the first step of going back is to realize we're going to keep sitting until we realize that other people are affected. Okay. The next thing is restitution. By the way, we have to tell people, I can't throw holy water on sin. What I mean is there are people is I've got to make good. This is something we have to really be careful when we hear people's confessions. If somebody told me I wrecked that person's reputation at the office, I said, I lied about them. I said that that person had stolen or I thought they might have stolen or something, and it wasn't true. I wanted to get the promotion. This is how I said, we can't leave it there. We've got to tell the people we told, we have got this like a paper printing or retraction, and I don't mean on page 66 in microprint and cuneiform. I mean, we've got to go back and we've got to undo the damage. That's one of the things you do in, in, in something like Alcoholics Anonymous. You have to go back and say, if you've done something wrong, if you stole the money for your habit and stuff, you've got to say, I, I don't have the money now, but I'm going to do it. I want you to know I stole money from you. I'm so ashamed. You never even noticed. I, t- I, t- I, took, I used to periodically take money. We were roommates. And if I'd see you had a 10 or something, I'd take it because I, wanted to, I, need, I needed to, to buy, the, buy the booze. And saying, I'm going to, I owe you 100. You know, say, I'm going to, I'm going to pay for it. And the side of this is a sign that we really are sorry. This is shows we really had. Why? What did Zacchaeus do? He said he ran down. He didn't have to be asked. He said, first of all, he said, you know, if I've done any wrong to somebody, right, I'm going to tell you. Four times, by the way, isn't being super generous. I mean, that's what the Old Testament requires. You can't just give it back or what's the, you know, you have to, the penalty was, it was, you had to give it back fourfold. So he's saying, look, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to restore. And then I'm going to get half what I have with, left over to the poor. But notice the fact that he, we don't real repentance is the fact that he wanted to make things right. So one of the troubles with restitution isn't to make feel guilty, but it means basically you're not really sorry yet, are you? If you're really sorry about hurting somebody, you want to do everything you can to make them better. If you broke somebody's arm, you want to do everything you can to make sure that harm heals, harm heals right. Say, I know your insurance is cut off. I want to help you get through some more physical therapy that you can't afford anymore. You know, that's real. if you're really sorry about something you want to do. Gee, I want to help you fix this. If I don't, if I feel like what's the minimum I have to do, it doesn't sound like, I'm, it sounds more like attrition, right? That I'm sorry it was a hassle rather than I really am sorry because I hurt somebody. And this is a duty. It would be wrong. We cannot. Now, they have to have the intention to restore. You, you don't say it's not like it's not forgiven, but they have to say, yeah, I am committed. I stole, I, even though it's going to be hard, I stole $1,000, I'm going to have to pay it back. That's not an option. Not making things right is not an option. That means you're not really sorry. That's throwing holy water on sin, blessing sin. Okay. Firm purpose of amendment. Now this means we can't go, you know, you have to, being sorry for your sins, you're not going to do them anymore. Now, uh, so if somebody's telling me, they're, they're coming and they're saying to me as a priest, saying, you know, gee, I live with my girlfriend, I know this is, is fornication, etc., and I'm sorry, and saying, well, I have priests, I have to ask, well, where are you going home tonight? Well, back with her, was saying, excuse me, you know, means you're not going to do it anymore. And that means you go stay with your brother tonight. You know, you're just not, oh, you know, you can't put yourself in harm's way. Saying, oh, I don't intend, no, I don't believe that, you know, you can't put yourself in harm's way. You know, you've got to start showing, you know, you just say, I'm not going to do drugs anymore. Well, that means, um, are you going to get rid of the friends that you do drugs with? No, well, then we know that's going to happen here. That's not reasonable. So, um, so we have to make sure, so, but here's the point is a firm purpose of amendment. Here, the, the number one point is most people feel, well, I can't say I'm never going to do it again. 
like a guy who has a porno problem saying, I wish it were true. I, I want to not do it again, but if you're asking me to predict, I think I'm probably going to fall again. That's not what a firm purpose of amendment is. A firm purpose means I'm going to try my best with God's help. It's not predicting I'll be 100% successful. Actually, a real Christian saying, all I know is I'm going to have grace for the next temptation. That's a real Christian thing. I can't say I'm not going to sin the rest of my life, but I can tell you this. The next thing, like you tell someone with an alcohol problem, the classic thing you say to them is, God's not actually never drank again. He's saying not to take the next drink. It's one drink at a time. That's beautiful, isn't it? He's just asking you don't take the next drink. After that, don't take the one after that. But that's really a whole, that's what he says, daily bread. It's beautiful. So, but they have to be committed. But we can't have someone saying, I'm going home and sinning again, saying, you know, I'm going to, you can't keep living in sin. Again, we're, otherwise we're throwing, you know, a firm purpose of amendment. Doesn't mean we actually can, we're not guaranteeing we'll never sin again. If someone said that, they just, like Paul, John says, if we say we have no sin, the truth's not in us. But we can say, I'm really going to be serious about sin. And the number one thing I look for as a priest, firm purpose amendment, am I leaving what we call a moral theology? We're going to talk about moral theology, the occasions of sin. Do you know what occasion of sin is? Let me tell you, it's really important. If some things are sinful of themselves, but other things are perfectly innocent, except that they, they lead to sin. Here's a classic case. This isn't sin, but in, in secular terms. One of the hardest things people have when they give up smoking is a lot of times they associate smoking with something else. Smoking is what they do when they have a cup of coffee. They have, you know, and so the trouble when they try to give up smoking, every time they have a cup of coffee, it's Pavlovian. They want to smoke. And we call that an occasion of sin. Caffeine doesn't, isn't going to give you lung cancer. But I know, if that's my case, that every time I have a cup of coffee, I end up having a cigarette, means I'm going to have to give up the coffee. And so it means that there are certain things that are perfectly innocent of themselves that I still have to give up because I know, even though for anybody else to be innocent, it's not innocent. I had one guy that was a beautiful, this is a glorious man, who came as a prayer minister many years ago to me. And, he, and isn't this beautiful? This just shows what a real Christian heart looks like. He said, I feel like those are fraud. He said there's this family channel. Back then it was really just as wholesome beyond belief. And he said, I've got to tell you, though, I just thought this man's conscience was glorious. I just wanted to praise God for it. Wow, what a beautiful, tender heart. He said, I think I'm a hypocrite. He said, because you know there's a woman on one of these series, and she always dressed modestly and stuff, but she, to me, she's just the sexiest woman alive. I just think she's just a beautiful woman. And always, I think, impure thoughts. You know, even though there's nothing, and the show is nothing, never, nothing. It's perfect as family as it could be. But for me, that's just the effect. I don't know why this one woman, but there's something about her that I find her really that way. I said, well, don't watch the show. <laughs> but, you know, the point is, I love that's the idea. Is say, there's nothing wrong with that show. But we all have things like that in our life that indirectly, it's like the old joke in moral theology is, you can't go into the bar just to eat the pretzels. <laughs> you can't say, well, there's nothing wrong eating pretzels. No, but you can't go to the bar just to eat the pretzels because you're going to drink the beer. You're going to remember that now, aren't you? You can't go to the bar to eat the pretzels. And what's penance? Penance isn't an absolute. In the Catholic Church, they'll go and tell you to do something. But normally in the church, when you had you do something like a form of uh, uh, mortification, like fast or do something. But here's why they did it. And this might help us, why it can be helpful for us. We normally don't give penances. Some priests do, I don't. But I think they're a really great idea. One thing you learn in counseling and things is one of the hardest things to do is to start something. Once you have something started, it sort of goes on in, in some way. So the best way if you're saying, I need to get exercising or something, I really feel guilty, I'm getting weight, I should go, I used to go to the gym, why not? The best way to say is, well, go down right now and do 10 push-ups or something. Doing anything can be the best, anything, you know, we're mind-body, 
Doing something physical can be one of the best ways to turn a mental intention into a reality. It's basic psychology. The church even know it was basic psychology, but boy, is that true. So this, how do you break the cycle? You say, I always do this, I say I'm sorry, then I'm doing it again. It's actually breaking the cycle by doing something like I'm gonna fast for two days, or I'm gonna go to morning prayer for a week or something like this, can really help break the cycle. It's like dropping down and doing 10. It can be saying, I've begun. It's not gonna just be what it's always been. I can break the cycle. It's like rebooting. It can be helpful for a reboot. Fair enough? Let's do our question. We have five questions. First of all, which of the following involves an effective sign? Would a sacrament of the gospel involve, a sign means it actually does what it symbolizes. Would that be true of baptism in Eucharist? Yeah. How about the sacramental rites? Like, is that true of confirmation when we pray? Yeah. Would that be true of sacramentals, like a sign of a cross? No. So it's only A and B. Question two. In the Anglican tradition, what's the focus? What are we doing in confirmation? Is it adult reaffirmation of our baptismal covenant? It is the laying on the hands by a bishop for the strengthening and empowering of the work of the Holy Spirit, or is it both? We're so Reformed Catholic. And so almost everywhere they're coming from, we're bringing the missing half. Okay, question three. When does a Christian receive the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit? Is it baptism, confirmation, or both? Both. Well, no, it's baptism, or the life-giving presence. Remember, we, are, we receive the act. That's regeneration. Is the, the new life we have is God's life in baptism. It's no, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. It's divine life we receive in our baptism. It's the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we pray for. We pray for the, the release and the strengthening of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Question four. But what we don't want is people thinking that means you haven't had the Holy Spirit, you're going to get the Holy No, you, always, you wouldn't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Okay, question four. For Anglicans, when is absolution by a bishop or priest considered necessary for the forgiveness of sins? You just can't have your sins forgiven without it. When? Never. Never. And finally, which of the following is not one of the traditional elements of absolution? Uh, do I have to have, should I have contrition? Contrition means I'm really sorry that I hurt God and others. Not just, it's not just about me. My primarily worry that how could I do this to someone else? Okay. Restitution. That's a traditional element. Remember we said, that I've got to make good. Again, we can't throw holy water and sin. We can't throw those steals and say, I'm going to keep it. The prophet Elijah famously said to, um, I love this. He, he has the principle that's just quoted in moral theology. Remember Ahab, um, what happened was Jezebel had um, Nahab, uh, Nahab's vineyard. Uh, had been, had, he had been killed, so he'd had the vineyard. And he meets Nahab as going, uh, uh, rather, um, Ahab, Ahab is actually going down to the vineyard. And what does Elijah say? He said, will you murder and then take possession? Meaning you can't, the theory is in law, you can't profit from a crime. A basic principle in every legal code is you can never profit from a crime. If I kill my wife, God forbid, I can't get the life insurance. You can never profit from a crime. Make sense? So that's the idea, restitution. You, we can't say it's okay, keep the money. You have to make things right. How about a, a firm expectation? I'm confident that I'll never commit this sin again. No, I have to have the intention. With God's grace, I'm going to do my very best. That's firm purpose of men. With God's grace, I'm going to do my very best.